You're listening to The Blind Stealing the Blinds, a podcast by students of the game for students of the game. Join Dell and BJ in conversations about poker theory and bridging the gap between theory and application. We're all in this together. This week's topic, parsimony in poker. Hey, Dell, how's it going this week? It's going really good. How are you doing today, BJ? I'm doing great. I had a wonderful Thanksgiving. I went to the casino Friday, Saturday, crushed it. I've okay. Now this is going to sound weird. This is the harbinger of a good day. On the weekend, I like to make fried eggs and toast, and invariably, I'll crack three eggs, and one of the yolks will break, and I'll just spew out obscenities. I collect pet peeves, like people collected Beanie Babies in the '90s, and one of my pet peeves is when I crack an egg and the yolk breaks, and I can't do that without not swearing, and it's weird. It's such a mundane thing, but I still swear like a sailor when it happens. Anyway, both days this weekend, I cracked my eggs and none of the yolks broke. So I'm like, you know what? This is going to be a red letter day. It's going to be an awesome weekend. And it was. I went to Maryland Live. I crushed it. The weather's great. I went to the golf course. I hammered out some kinks in my swing. Life was peaches and cream. I'm not going to say it was all because of the eggs, but the eggs were important of the good days to come. Believe that. Wow. Well, you know what I have to say about that, right? I'm crazy. That, yeah, no, 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 no. I, I was going to say, yeah, I mean, you are, but that's not what I was going to say. Uh, the next time you go to crack your eggs and you break one of your oaks, just listen to last week's episode. Uh, you know, you can find happiness no matter how your eggs come out. That's right. I should journal about it. I should take some time out, journal about how I can be grateful for the experience of the cracked egg, and then move on. So I, I had a good week, too. I Thanksgiving is. And I know a lot of people are happy with Thanksgiving nowadays, but for me, it's just another excuse to get together with family and talk about things being grateful. And so I had a great week. I had a bad poker session that I, I was a little childish about, but I've moved on from it. And, you know, I was able to pass out some of our promotional chips. So that was neat. I, I don't really have anything exciting, but it was a good week. I had the whole week off. It's hard to complain about that. We do have one new exciting piece of news. Diane became our first subscriber at 99 cents per month. If you visit our website, www.tbstb.com, at the bottom, you can see a link to support the show. One big blind per month is all we ask. And Diane took us up on the offer. She likes our content and we're encouraged by her support. So thank you very much. And we hope to continue cranking out some decent content. And hopefully that will encourage more of you to subscribe and support the show. When you have the entire week off, life is pretty simple. And our topic for today's episode is keeping things simple. And we didn't want to do the whole keep it simple, stupid, the whole KISS acronym that everybody does. Instead, in typical form, how I do my esoteric academic stuff like poker anthropology or science like the hedonic treadmill, I'm going to introduce a term, parsimony. I understand in the UK and Europe, you call it parsimony. In the U.S., you might call it parsimony. It doesn't matter. It's the concept that a good theory should be easily applied simply. Some of you might have heard this as Occam's razor, and a lot of people confuse Occam's razor. That says the simplest solution is almost always the most correct. That's not what Occam's razor says. It says don't multiply entities beyond necessity. Things can have multiple moving parts. Don't oversimplify things to the point where the theory falls apart. You can't take all the springs and cogs out of a watch and still have it work. 
but don't go in throwing extra cogs and extra springs just because you think extra cogs and springs will make the watch work extra better. That's not how it works. So parsimony in the aspect of poker is taking complex ideas, complex theory, things you might study off the table, and applying them more simply on the felt. And of course, we can apply this in life as well. And I think, Dell, when we were talking about your poker session and my poker sessions as of late, we've talked about how we've leveled ourselves. And that's one example of how we're not adhering to parsimony because we're making things way more complicated than they need. Yeah, I thought that, well, first of all, I want to give some credit to where credit's due. This topic comes out of our friend and coach, Chip Extractor, or uh, Steve Catterson. He took and posted in our Slack group that tweet from actually Patrick Howard about a simple solution to a GTO theory. And I'm not going to go too deep into that, but if you don't follow Patrick Howard on Twitter, you probably should. Is it just at Patrick Howard? I believe so. But I'm sure if you put in his name and put poker in, you'll find him. The thing is that we've been talking about GTO and we've talked sometimes about complex theory. And what I wanted to make sure is that we don't get too far off the heart of what, what our podcast is about, which is really about the application part. So in my mind, we can go and we can study GTO, and we can go down all the rabbit holes of complexity in GTO. And what makes all these things that are, are what good poker is supposed to look like. But the reality is, is most of us are going to sit down and we're not going to observe good poker at the table we're playing at. Maybe at the higher levels, you start to see more of it. But most of us, most poker players aren't playing at the higher levels. Most of us are playing at the mid stakes at best, low stakes, micro stakes online. This is where the majority of us are playing and we're not seeing good poker. So the solution oftentimes is not that complex. Sometimes the solution is as simple as on this board being a super static board, I can see bet 100% of my range. And, and is it exploitable? Sure, it's exploitable. But even if they try to exploit me, it's so minimally effective that I'm taking a plus EV line here. It's probably the most plus EV line that I can take. All right. It's real simple in that particular case. What we need to do is we need to look at those theories. But what we really need to do, what really poker boils down to from an exploitative point is what mistakes are our opponents making? That's the first question we got to answer. What mistakes are they making? And then the next thing we have to answer is, how do I exploit that mistake? I would add a third, and it is, what mistakes are we making? Because we can exploit our opponents as much as we can and make profit. However, we're still going to suffer variance. We all know variance happens over the long term, kind of up and down, whatever. And we shoot ourselves in the foot when we make bad mistakes. And I mean, life is hard enough with variance. Life is harder when we sabotage ourselves with bad mistakes. Now that said, you and I had a conversation before we recorded about what mistakes our opponents are making. And we brought up the concept of population tendency. And I originally said, you know what? I don't care what the population tendencies are because I'm not playing against the population. I'm playing against the one, two, three, maybe four opponents in any given hand. The thing that you countered with, and I completely agree with this now, is the population tendencies are going to dictate for me what my baseline is for an unknown opponent. Jack squat sits at my table. I don't know anything about them. I'm going to ascribe to them the population tendency of my local casino until and unless I profile that player and understand more about their level of thinking, 
their experience, their behavioral tells? Are they paying attention? Things like that. Right. I, we're, we are, first of all, I, I think it goes beyond the, just your local card room because like me, I, I travel for work and I can find myself in a lot of different card rooms around the country. So I'm walking in with the basic standard notion of what the population tendency is at that level on a given day. For example, at one, two, we know they limp too much. You know, they, they still limp too much at two, five in a lot of places. So I can go in there and I can, they're opening too wide and they're calling too wide at these two levels. So I, I can go into a lot of card rooms and, and literally start out with that as an understanding that I can three bet a little bit more because they're probably openings too wide and I can expect them to call a little wide. Now, will I keep that notion? No, it's going to change as soon as I start getting information. But we can use that population tendency as a starting point, and we can narrow it down with each new piece of information. And it might turn out to be that when we look at that, right, we're looking at it and like we've studied good poker principles, and we know that this person should be opening from this position about this much. These are the things that should be in their range, but they're opening too much for that. And the fact that they're opening too much, and we've seen them show down cards that shouldn't be in their range from that position. Now we can start to take in and add in what, well, their mistake is obviously that they're opening too wide. And we could go through the whole thing and we could sit there and go, well, I need to balance my range, which by the way, people stop doing that. Stop saying that. It's not, it's not really what you're doing. You might be polarizing your range. You might be merging your range. If you're at the lower levels, this is really, you're leveling yourself out of money. You're making a complicated strategy for a simple problem. It's really as simple as they're opening too wide. I can three bet them within my well-constructed range a little wider. They're calling too often, which means they're still going to have to fold too many hands on the flop or the turn. So we can take advantage of that and we can manipulate the cost of their playing a little bit due to the fact that they're opening too wide. Maybe the mistake is they stick around too much with second and third pairs when they should be going away with them. Well, then we know that the simple solution is just to value bet them so much. We don't have to spend a lot of time overcomplicating our strategy. A couple of weeks ago, we had a, a whole big thing about it's not exploitative versus GTO. It's exploitative and GTO. And I still feel that way. You learn a lot about what your opponents are making from mistakes by studying GTO. But a lot of times you're not going to be needing to take and polarize your range. You're not going to need to merge your range. Sometimes you can just bet a nice, strong, solid linear range or value over and over again at some levels to make money. You don't need to overcomplicate it. The strategy, the application should be simple. The biggest example I can think of where we overcomplicate our strategy is in river shove situation because the river shove is clearly where the most money is at stake and where it's probably the easiest to make the right play based on population tendencies absent any other player information you've gleaned at the table. If I'm playing against the standard 1-2, 1-3, or even some 2-5 recreational players and they shove on the river, it almost doesn't even matter the decisions that happened prior to that spot. I'm folding. Unless I have the nuts, I'm folding. Because so few people at those stakes bluff in river shoves. Now, should you bluff in river shoves? Yeah, probably. If you're playing a nice GTO strategy 
where you're arriving at the river spot with X number of value hands and X number of bluff hands, and you can consider that your opponent can reasonably fold based on your shoves. Yeah, if all those factors play, then yeah, you should probably have some bluffs in your range. However, at the regular lower stakes, people aren't bluffing on river shoves. You're going to save yourself a bunch of money if you don't level yourself by making things complicated and think, well, what could they possibly be doing this with? Let me retroactively retell the story of the hand with every single permutation of possible combinations that beat me here. No, there aren't any. They all beat you here. That's why they're shoving. Just fold. Yeah, you know, the funny thing is, is, is that I feel like when we talk about the mistakes we're making, I mean, I think there's a lot of value in that in, in the moment. There really is. But we don't think about it. In the, we tend to think about it afterward. So we'll sit there. And the way we, we're going to work on finding those mistakes that we're making is, is through off-table work or hand histories or discussing it with somebody who is a better player than us or if that, not a better player, at least understands what good poker should look like. The thing about that is this, like, it's interesting because before we came on, I was talking with BJ, I was dealing with a situation where somebody shoved on the river. I had a little bit of value and I talked myself into calling them. Now they had three, four of hearts and they had gotten there with a flush. And this was in a three bet pot that they called with that three, four of hearts. And I could go about all the things that they did wrong. And in the end, I did something wrong. I overplayed my hand that did not have a lot of value on the river. And I made a call that should have been an easy fold. But in the moment, I talked myself into all the reasons why I thought it was a good call. That's why it's important to have a plan and, and stick to it. And I didn't. You know, my plan would have been at it. it if somebody's shoving the river, I'm going to fold. Yeah, you need to find those mistakes. And you find those mistakes with the off-table work. The reality is that's where you find the mistakes your opponent are making. And that's where you find how to exploit them is all that off-table work. What lines are we going to take in these situations? And you do it over and over again. It's still the application should be simple. Go down all the rabbit holes you want. The application should be simple. So when we're looking at that, that that's the solution to the whole overcomplicating. It really is that simple. Those three questions. We need to ask ourselves the question, what mistakes are they making? But then we also need to figure out how do we go about answering that question? How do we find out? what mistakes they're making. So I think that I want to talk about the tools. Now, the thing is that we keep mentioning Michael Acevedo's book. We keep mentioning Andrew Brokus's book, and, and they keep coming up as tools. There, there's a reason. Read these books. These books are going to give you an idea of how to go about range construction, getting to good GTO principles. You start there, and, and that'll help you identify opponent's mistakes. I think another way, another tool, because there's not really a lot of tools here. It's more like exercises, but I would present an exercise that if you're at the table, before you even look at your cards, everybody who has either limped to you or opened and called and it gets to you when you position, ask yourself what mistakes those players are making that you're seeing them make and how can you exploit them? Then look at your cards and ask, is this hand good for exploiting these players. That's what I've got. I would say there's also a tool to carry on through future streets of the hand. And that is don't overcomplicate the thought process of your opponent. They're most likely not capable of higher level thought. I'm not saying higher level thought as a slight or an insult. I'm talking about the whole, 
Iocane powder, Princess Bride, what cup is the poison in? That kind of stuff. If you're at the turn and your opponent check raises, what do you think they're actually check raising you? That's kind of the question to ask. What are they taking this action with? A lot of opponents at the lower stakes aren't check raising speculative hands. Oh, I have two overs and a blush draw. I'm going to check raise here because I have an appropriate mixture of value and bluff hands in my range. They're not even thinking about ranges. They're thinking about their two cards. If they're check raising you, it's likely because they have a nutted or near nutted hand. Let it go. It's hard to do. It's hard to let hands go, especially when we can talk ourselves into all these reasons why we should stay. Unless and until you have sufficient information that you can ascribe to this opponent a psychology other than the population tendency, then just go with the simple defaults. If they're check raising, if they're making big river shoves, if they're doing really massive amounts of money moves, it's probably because they have it. Now, if they don't have it, kudos on them. Give them a high five. Well done, player. But in the long run, you're probably going to end up making more money because you will not have lost massive stacks against those river bluffs and the check raises and actions like that. If I were to explain to my 13-year-old son what mistakes my opponents are making, and I can't explain it to him in a way that he understands, it's too complicated. I would say that's a litmus test. If you have a spouse that you talk poker to, or a friend who, even though they might not be a serious poker player, they at least enjoy the fact that you play poker and like that you share it with them, if you can explain these things to them and they understand it, then it's not too complicated. I would say another way to identify these mistakes is actually on table work when you're not in the hand. I have countless examples of when I've sat at the table and paid attention to two opponents, and it is clear as day that opponent A either has a flush or a boat, and opponent B has, let's say, two pair, a set, maybe straight. It doesn't matter. Opponent B is beat. And opponent B ends up calling like a massive bet. And I'm thinking to myself, how could you not see that? It was clear as day to me. Well, that's an example of them making a mistake and me identifying it. Now, I'm not going to take out a pen and paper and write that down to catalog in the future. What you might want to do is take your phone out and pretend that you're texting someone and maybe capture notes there. That's actually how I record hand histories. I do it on my phone. It just looks like I'm texting. It's kind of innocuous. But the point is, I am taking note of these mistakes so that I can exploit them in the future. And I'm trying to make the exploits simple. This guy knits it up. Okay, if he opens in early position, I'm folding everything other than premium hands. If he three bets me, I'm getting the heck out of the pot. Find a really simple exploit that you can explain to your spouse or your young child, and there you have it. So I don't really have anything more to add here, DJ, do you? No, I think we've had a a simple episode about a simple topic on parsimony or parsimony, depending if you're in the US or the UK. So let's not make this episode more complicated than it needs to be. <laughs> I think we're all done here, Dell. Thanks for joining me. It's been awesome, BJ. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. It's always a good time. And until next week, keep it simple. This has been The Blind Stealing the Blinds, a podcast by students of the game for students of the game. If you haven't already done so, consider subscribing. And when you're not counting your chips, take a moment to leave the guys a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get yours. Thank you.